Welcome to the November 23rd, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the findings from a long-term follow-up study of fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab in IGHV-mutated CLL. Learn more about the impact of genetic alterations and minimal residual disease in adults with KMT2A rearranged B-cell precursor ALL and discuss a preclinical study of reinforced immunotherapy for myeloma using a new bispecific antibody-based approach. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Sustained Remissions in CLL After Frontline FCR Treatment with Very Long-Term Follow-Up by Philip Thompson from the University of Melbourne in Parkville, Australia, and colleagues. Several previous studies have reported long-term progression-free survival after first-line treatment with fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab, also known as FCR in chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients with mutations in the immunoglobulin heavy chain variable, or IGHV, gene. These patients represent about 40% of CLL patients and have a significant survival advantage compared to those without IGHV mutations. These findings have raised the possibility of a functional cure in a significant portion of patients with IGHV-mutated CLL treated with FCR although there remains a concern about their risk of developing therapy-related neoplasms. New targeted therapies without chemotherapeutic agents have recently shown promise in IGHV-mutated CLL. The U.S. ECOG 1912 trial demonstrated both a progression-free survival benefit with continuous therapy with ibrutinib plus rituximab over FCR, as well as an overall survival benefit in young and fit patients including those with IGHV-mutated CLL. And the GAIA-CLL-13 trial reported similar three-year progression-free survival for FCR and a time-limited one-year course of venetoclax plus obinutuzumab in patients with IGHV-mutated CLL. However, while these early results are encouraging, the follow-up in both studies was too short to draw any definite conclusions. In the current paper, the authors report on the very long-term follow-up of a Phase two study of FCR given as frontline therapy for young, fit CLL patients. This study involved 300 patients treated at the MD Anderson Cancer Center from 1999 to 2003. Their median age was 57 years at start of treatment. Here, the authors provide additional follow-up compared to their previous 2015 update. Their major aims were to confirm the durability of long-term remissions and assess the incidence of other cancers. IGHV mutation status and minimal residual disease were determined according to previously described protocols. The IGHV gene was mutated in 88 patients, unmutated in 126, and unknown in 86. Progressive disease was based on IWCLL 1996 criteria. Relapse and survival data were collected throughout the long-term follow-up, where the median time was 19 years. 
With this extended follow-up, the median progression-free survival was 6.4 years for the entire studied population. However, the median PFS was significantly longer for patients with mutated IGHV compared to patients with unmutated IGHV, namely 14.6 years versus 4.2 years. Disease progression beyond 10 years was uncommon, suggesting that many patients achieved a functional cure for their disease. Only 4 out of 45 patients with mutated IGHV progressed beyond 10 years. At the 15-year follow-up, 48.7% of patients with mutated IGHV remained alive and progression-free, compared to only 8.3% of patients at risk with unmutated IGHV. The median overall survival was 12.7 years for the entire population. The 15-year overall survival was significantly longer for patients with mutated IGHV compared to patients with unmutated IGHV namely 63.1% versus 32.0%. And the relative survival of subjects with mutated IGHV was not significantly different from a U.S. reference population matched by age, sex, and year. 55% of patients with unmutated IGHV died due to progressive refractory CLL, compared to 17% of patients with mutated IGHV. Approximately one-third of patients developed other malignancies. 19, or 6.3%, of cases were determined to be therapy-related myeloid neoplasms, which were fatal in almost all. There was no correlation between pretreatment characteristics and the risk of developing a therapy-related myeloid neoplasm. The authors concluded that their findings confirm FCR as a reasonable treatment option for patients with IGHV-mutated CLL, since a significant fraction of studied patients achieved a functional cure. However, they stress that a risk-benefit assessment is still advised when deciding on a treatment course, since the benefit of a potential cure needs to be balanced with the risk of late relapses and secondary malignancies. In an accompanying commentary, Matthew S. Davids from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, notes that this new report by Thompson and collaborators reminds us that CLL patient outcomes should not only be considered at five years after starting therapy, but also at 20 years and beyond. Based on these most recent long-term data, FCR remains a reasonable choice for young, fit patients with IGHV-mutated CLL especially in countries where access to frontline targeted therapies is limited. However, the risks of secondary myeloid neoplasms, prolonged myelosuppression, and infectious complications also need to be considered when making a treatment decision. Even though the durability of remissions now being achieved with long-term sequential use of targeted therapies is promising, the question that remains to be addressed is how well these compared to FCR at 20 years. However, Davids is optimistic that therapeutic advances for CLL are likely to continue in the next decade and beyond. Combination therapies currently under investigation include ibrutinib plus venetoclax, with or without obinutuzumab, or venetoclax plus obinutuzumab in combination with the BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib, or zanubrutinib. For example, the ongoing CL311 Amplify Phase 3 trial will help us understand how regimens like this compare to FCR therapy. 
Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled Genetic Alterations and MRD Refine Risk Assessment Within KMT2A Rearranged B-Cell Precursor ALL in Adults, a Graal study by Rathana Kim from the Saint-Louis Hospital in Paris, France, and colleagues. KMT2A Rearranged B-Cell Precursor Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, also known as KMT2AR BCP-ALL, is widely recognized as a high-risk type of leukemia in both children and adults. It is historically associated with dismal outcomes. KMT2A encodes a transcriptional activator, also known as MLL. The high prevalence and poor prognosis of KMT2AR in infant ALL, where the rearrangement is found in three-quarters of patients, has led to the launch of multiple studies in the pediatric population aimed at improving the therapeutic options for this subtype of leukemia. However, there are few studies addressing this BCP-ALL subgroup in adults, where KMT2A rearrangements are found in only 5 to 10% of these patients. Studies conducted in childhood BCP-ALL using large datasets discovered that distinct genetic subtypes are associated with different responses to therapy, indicating that minimal residual disease, or MRD, may also have a prognostic value. Indeed, in both children and adults with BCPALL, the assessment of MRD in the early stages of treatment has allowed for a redefinition of risk groups. However, no study to date has investigated the significance of additional genetic mutations, or MRD, in the setting of adult KMT2AR BCPALL. Thus, KMT2AR BCPALL continues to be viewed as a high-risk leukemia in adults, irrespective of other risk criteria. In the current study, the authors conducted a comprehensive analysis of genetic co-mutations and MRD in a large cohort of adults with BCPALL treated in three consecutive clinical trials conducted by the Group of Research on Adult Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia also known as GRAAL. They hypothesized that additional criteria would allow better refinement of prognosis for the subgroup of patients with KMT2AR BCPALL. Between 2003 and 2020, a total of 1,163 patients aged 15 to 59 years with newly diagnosed Philadelphia-negative BCPALL were treated in GRAAL 2003, GRAL 2005, and GRAL 2014. Similar intensive pediatric-inspired chemotherapy regimens were used in the protocols for all three GRAL studies. A total of 1,091 patients had a known status for KMT2A rearrangement, of whom 141, or 12.9%, were positive, as determined at diagnosis using cytogenetic analysis. Their median age was 42 years. MRD was assessed using quantitative PCR of clonospecific immunoglobulin and or T-cell receptor gene rearrangements or for KMT2A rearrangements. The cutoff for MRD positivity was 10 to the minus 4. Screening for additional genetic alterations was performed through targeted DNA sequencing of a comprehensive panel of genes. 
The following outcomes measures were assessed. Complete remission, disease-free survival, overall survival, and cumulative incidence of relapse. Patients that harbored a KMT2A rearrangement had a cumulative incidence of relapse of 40.7% and overall survival of 53.3%. Notably, these were only moderately lower than other BCP-ALL patients in their cohort. These results suggested that the Grahl pediatric-inspired chemotherapy effectively contributed to improved outcomes for KMT2AR patients. The authors next looked for characteristics which could serve as prognostic markers in these patients. Strikingly, no classical risk factors, namely age, white blood cell count, pro-B phenotype, and early blast clearance, were associated with outcome. In looking for genetic commutations, molecular profiling highlighted a low mutational burden in KMT2AR BCP-ALL in adults as is the case with infant BCP-ALL. The most frequent were mutations in RAS and receptor tyrosine kinase genes, occurring at a rate of 38%, and most were present in minor clones. Interestingly, patients harboring TP53 and or IKZF1 alterations, which occurred in 14% and 8% of patients respectively, had significantly poorer outcomes. Compared to patients lacking these mutations, the cumulative incidence of relapse was higher at 69.3% versus 36.5%, and overall survival was lower at 28.1% versus 60.7%. The authors also analyzed the prognostic value of MRD after induction and first consolidation therapy. The immunoglobulin T-cell receptor rearrangements were absent, or displayed clonal evolution during the disease course in approximately one-third of patients, which rendered this marker unreliable for MRD monitoring. In contrast, KMT2A-based MRD was highly reliable and strongly associated with outcome. Using a combination of mutation analysis and MRD response, the authors were able to identify three distinct subgroups of patients, namely onconegative MRD-negative, onconegative MRD-positive, and oncopositive MRD-positive, who had starkly different outcomes. For example, the three-year cumulative incidence of relapse was 7.1% in the onconegative MRD-negative group, compared to almost 90% in those that had either TP53 or IKZF1 alterations and remained MRD-positive. Similarly, the overall survival at three years in the onconegative MRD-negative patient group was 92.9%, compared to 11.1% for patients with high-risk biomarkers of MRD positivity and mutations in TP53 or IKZF1. Notably, the excellent outcomes for the MRD-negative group occurred in the absence of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant following complete remission. Taken together, this study reveals significant heterogeneity in outcomes among adults with KMT2A rearranged BCP-ALL and identifies new biomarkers which may be used in risk-based therapeutic stratification. In an accompanying commentary, Shai Shimoni and Marlies Luskin from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, 
Note that Kim and collaborators demonstrate for the first time successful identification and risk stratification of adults with KMT2A rearranged BCP-ALL. Until now, there has been no data to help clinicians in risk stratification of patients with this rare form of ALL. This study showed that patients with early KMT2A-based MRD response and the absence of high-risk genetic markers at diagnosis achieved significant benefit from intensive pediatric-inspired chemotherapy. Thus, risk-adapted therapy appears beneficial in KMT2A-rearranged BCP-ALL offering new hope for the lowest-risk subgroup and avoiding the toxicities associated with allogeneic transplant. Shimoni is optimistic that the new classifier created by the Graal investigators will be studied in additional large ALL cohorts, including patients treated with other intensive asparagine-based therapies, with or without novel agents. This new risk stratification approach will probably also find its application in studies evaluating the efficacy of novel treatments for KMT2 rearranged ALL, including blinatumumab consolidation and menin inhibitors. Finally, the ability of HSCT to improve cure in high-risk patients should also be assessed in future studies. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Reinforced Antimyeloma Therapy via Dual Lymphoid Activation Mediated by a Panel of Antibodies Armed with Bridging Bite by Tatsuya Konishi from Ehime University Graduate School of Medicine in Ehime, Japan, and colleagues. The therapeutic arsenal for multiple myeloma has expanded over the years to include monoclonal antibodies targeting antigens expressed by myeloma cells in combination with immunomodulatory drugs and proteasome inhibitors. However, despite promising results from the latest clinical trials, multiple myeloma remains incurable. Bispecific antibodies represent the latest advance in immunotherapies, with promising efficacy in difficult-to-treat hematological malignancies. They act by recognizing a surface, tumor-specific protein on one end and stimulating an immune receptor on the other, thereby bridging the gap between immune cells and tumor cells. Two recent Phase II trials reported remarkable efficacy of bispecific antibodies that stimulate the T-cell signaling receptor CD3 and also recognize multiple myeloma proteins, the B-cell maturation antigen BCMA or the G-protein-coupled receptor GPC5RD. In both trials, patients with advanced multiple myeloma refractory to multiple lines of treatment, achieved deep and durable responses. Currently approved agents for multiple myeloma target a single tumor antigen and stimulate a single cell type, typically T-cells. Unfortunately, this approach may lead to the development of primary resistance if the tumor downregulates the target antigen. In the current study, the authors sought to circumvent this limitation by designing a bridging, bispecific T-cell engager, or B-bite, that can bind to both a human IgGFC domain and the CD3 molecule. 
Incubating B-bite with human monoclonal antibodies produces a complex in which the original monoclonal antibody confers antigen specificity, while the B-bite activates T-cells via CD3. Thus, B-bites can serve as a backbone to customize T-cell immunotherapy using off-the-shelf antibodies being developed as anti-cancer drugs. The authors tested the efficacy and safety of B-bite complexes bound to various clinically available monoclonal antibodies using a series of in vitro and in vivo approaches. They first generated B-bite complexes with daratumumab and rituximab, which target CD38 and CD20, respectively. In co-cultures with target antigen-expressing cell lines, they observed the activation of both T-cells and, importantly, NK cells. The latter is because the B-bite design allows the coupled monoclonal antibody to still stimulate NK cells through their FC receptors. Moreover, the investigators were able to show that T-cell activation also promotes NK proliferation, resulting in a synergistic and powerful dual lymphoid activation and enhanced antimyeloma activity. Next, the authors showed that patient T and NK cells respond to autologous myeloma cells in the presence of daratumumab and B-bite. In mouse models of a CD38 low tumor, which serves as a model of resistance to daratumumab, they showed that sequential administration of two B-bite complexes with FDA-approved monoclonal antibodies, daratumumab and elotuzumab, is therapeutically superior to the sequential treatment with two uncoupled monoclonal antibodies, or treatment with monoclonal antibody bite monotherapy. These experiments were performed in immune-deficient mice, reconstituted with human PBMCs, and injected with tumor cells. Importantly, the monoclonal B-bite complex showed stability in vivo, as well as an acceptable safety profile. In theory, it's possible that B-bites will uncouple from therapeutic monoclonal antibodies in vivo and form complexes with existing antibodies, resulting in unpredictable and potentially serious toxicity. To investigate this, the authors tested the daratumumab B-bite complex in the presence of human polyclonal immunoglobulin they found that off-target immune cell reactivity attributable to B-bite or the daratumumab B-bite complex was not observed either in vitro or in vivo. The authors conclude that the tested bispecific antibodies coupled with approved monoclonal antibodies can induce deep and durable anti-tumor responses. This shines a new light on the utility of reinforced immunotherapy for multiple myeloma and other refractory hematological malignancies. In an accompanying commentary, Liliana Luca from the Cancer Research Center of Toulouse in Toulouse, France, notes that the study by Konishi and collaborators highlights several important advantages of B-bites. First, they provide two binding sites for a tumor antigen of interest, compared to just one, like monoclonal antibodies. Second, they simultaneously stimulate T-cells, NK-cells, and the interaction between two cell types. Third, they can be used to quickly change treatments as soon as resistance develops to help circumvent myeloma cell antigen escape. Luca adds that future studies should explore the possibility of in vivo coupling of B-bites with circulating antibodies, which could have therapeutic implications in patients with autoimmune disease 
and those with autoantibodies of unknown clinical significance. An important safety consideration with the use of bee bites is that antibodies may react to chronic viruses and self-antigens, and this should be evaluated in future studies. Finally, the authors did not observe regulatory T-cell activation, despite the ability of Tregs to be activated by CD3. Luca says this finding deserves further exploration, especially because preliminary results suggest that Tregs may limit the activity of the bispecific antibody teclistimab in multiple myeloma. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.